Last week, President Biden broke down and imposed a vaccine mandate on large swaths of the country. Who does this mandate affect? Is it constitutional? Will it work? And what will the political fallout be? We'll cover that all on this episode. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another informative episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the RSG Facebook and Instagram feeds. And once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Okay, so we broke recently from our Afghanistan, COVID, COVID, Afghanistan formula. I recorded a podcast on the Texas abortion case, which was very long, but we're back to COVID because President Biden released a vaccine mandate or promised a vaccine mandate by executive order. And this is something that has been quite controversial. And so we're going to break it down. Now, I will start by saying that I think this is neither prima facie case that we have fallen into tyranny and fascism, nor a silver bullet that will actually solve the COVID problem. And I will get into that quite substantially in this podcast. And I think one of the things that that I will say as a cautionary note on this is it's just worth keeping in mind that healthcare people are not policy people, okay? You can be really, really smart about epidemiology and not actually understand anything about the aspects of global politics, the economy, or like basic human nature. Okay, so yes, every epidemiologist will tell you that a vaccine mandate will solve the problem. There's a lot more complexity that goes into it. Now, that doesn't mean that increasing vaccination rates won't help. Okay, so that's the other thing to tease out at the outset. A lot of people are overpromising what this can do. That doesn't mean that increasing the U.S. vaccination rate wouldn't be a good thing, wouldn't provide some immediate relief to hospitals and so on and so forth, and that there aren't some benefits from that. So we have to look at whether the costs and the benefits, how that lines up from a policy perspective, from a constitutional perspective, and so on and so forth. Okay, so first of all, let's break down what is being done here or what, the, what Biden has promised to do. I'm going to, again, reference the Advisory Opinions podcast. They did a really good breakdown on on some of the legal aspects of this. And so I'm not going to get into every detail of the legal and constitutional arguments because you can listen to that podcast, which I recommend. Uh, This is the second time I've recommended that podcast. So if I do a third time, I'm going to have to reach out to them and tell them that they need to start paying for advertising on my podcast. Just kidding. So what Biden essentially is doing is, first of all, a mandate on federal workers to be vaccinated. And that is probably legally constitutionally the least controversial, especially if, as it is now being reported, it was not reported when it initially came out, but it's now being reported that it's either a vaccine or testing mandate. In other words, you either have to get vaccinated or get tested once a week. Why is that probably going to stand up to scrutiny more? Number one, because the president is in fact in charge of every executive agency in the government, and most of the government 
is in fact composed of executive agencies. Okay. So if you work for the social security administration, who's your boss, the president, if you work for the military, who's your boss, the president, if you work at a local VA hospital for the department of veterans affairs, who's your boss, the president. Okay. Yeah. Can the president put mandates on federal workers? Yes, because he's their boss. And so it's, it's kind of the same way that if Walmart wanted to, for example, say, if you work here, you have to get vaccinated. They can, right? Because they're, they're paying you. Um, you know, there's some employment protections and so on and so forth. And in fact, if there's any challenge to the federal mandate, it's going to be from labor unions, okay? Because there are questions about HIPAA, which is medical privacy. There are questions about, you know, there were some claims coming out early that, well, if someone's not vaccinated, the federal government's just going to fire them. Well, that's not exactly how federal employment law works. It's not like Walmart in that sense. There are protections sort of against that that have been built up for a long period of time. And federal employee unions are very strong. And they're a very important democratic constituency. So expect that this particular mandate is going to end up you know, taking a while to get ironed out and is not going to be as sweeping as promised. Okay. That's the thing about these executive orders. And this is something we saw in the Trump administration. You always want to read the fine print because even when a draft executive order gets leaked, that's not the final version, right? So the Muslim travel ban is a classic example of this. There are several iterations of it. The first one that came out was broad sweeping and to be fair, not particularly well written. The final one that came out was a very narrow comparatively travel ban people coming in from a specific set of countries and with with more specific justifications such that it was able to withstand more legal scrutiny than the original one would have been. Okay, so you can bet your bottom dollar that as they're writing this, they're having conversations, some of which are going to be somewhat adversarial with labor unions. But I would say it's some way in some point when unions objections are satisfied, this is going to get put in place. And it is going to probably with, withstand legal scrutiny in whatever form that it, it, it comes out. And it's also not going to have that much of an impact because you're talking about, with, even with a federal workforce, you're talking about a couple million people, among whom vaccination rates are probably already pretty decent. So, you know, it'll have an impact, not a huge one, okay? But it is something that Biden can clearly do. So that's point one. Point number two is where we start to get into something that's very, very sticky and complicated. And I would say this one is probably going to end up getting struck down. It's just a question of how, and it might not be as clear cut of a case as some conservatives are thinking. So point number two on this is a, is a essentially requirement that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, create an emergency rule requiring employers with over 100 people, to impose vaccine mandate. And presumably, if they don't, there's going to be some sort of fine associated with that, okay? So president is basically saying, oh, shut, make a rule, okay? Now, there are a number of complex questions that come into play. And like I said, the folks uh, over advisory opinions did a good job of sort of breaking down all different aspects of this. But let's, let's look at the underlying constitutional justification for this. Okay. So like pretty much the entire expansion of the government since the new deal, the implicit premise here is the commerce clause, which gives Congress. Yes, I said Congress. We'll come back to that. Congress, the right to regulate interstate commerce. 
And this has been expanded quite dramatically since the New Deal, such that interstate commerce has been taken to mean, well, kind of a lot of things, right? So it's a very expansive, broadly interpreted provision of the Constitution really since the 1930s and not much before that, okay? Now, based on that interpretation of the Commerce Clause, if Congress wanted to impose a vaccine mandate on companies engaged in interstate commerce with over 100 employees, could they do so? Probably yes, okay? If you accept the Commerce Clause jurisprudence that has governed things since the 1930s, could Congress do this? Probably yes. But wait, we're not talking about Congress, we're talking about President Biden via executive order. Now we start to get into something that's really complicated and underlies a lot of the government and that this podcast has complained about many, 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 many times in the past and that I will probably complain about, complain about many, many, many times again in the future, which is the doctrine of delegation. The doctrine of delegation is essentially Congress passes the Goodness, Truth, and Beauty Act and then delegates regulatory structures to the agencies, the executive agencies. So Congress is saying, we mandate goodness, truth, and beauty, and we leave it up to, to, to the regulatory agencies to determine what goodness, truth, and beauty are and to figure out how they're going to achieve that. It's not quite that hand-wavy, but it's pretty close. So like, let's take, for example, the, the, um, the statute that empowers OSHA. It basically kind of gives OSHA the right to create health and safety standards using whatever legal formula it wants to, you know, broadly interpreted. And yeah, you know, you guys figure it out. And if people don't like it, like the courts will fix it. Okay, that's not legislating. That, that is essentially like when your boss says, hey, yeah, I need, a, I need a report on Cambodia by like next week. What about Cambodia? I don't know. Figure it out. Right? That, that's, that's, not, that's delegating, not legislating. Okay? And so like there's a question about should Congress be able to essentially delegate its legislative authority to the executive? Now, here's my opinion. No. <laughs> okay? It should not. If you want regulations, they need to come from legislation. Legislation needs to specifically enumerate what the executive agency is doing, and Congress needs to be accountable for it. You can't just say, oh, we've got this statute, and we're going to pass it off to the executive agencies, and then they're going to do it. And if they do something we don't like, we can go back to our constituents and wring our hands about how they're not doing what we want even though we're the ones who are empowered to do it and we've essentially delegated it so that we can get reelected. That's not how legislation is supposed to work. Congress needs to do its job, period. However, courts have been deferential to delegation in the past. Now, some smart, smart court watchers think that this current Supreme Court majority is going to clip the wings of the delegation doctrine, to which I say it would be about bloody time because the unchecked, unregulated, unaccountable growth of executive bureaucracies that have pretty much proven themselves to be freaking incompetent since COVID started. I mean, look, if you look at most of the failures in America's COVID response, you know, everybody blames the American people because the American people won't like sit in their house, lock themselves in their houses for two weeks like 
people in other countries. But let's also not forget that we don't have quality testing to this day because of screw-ups the CDC made. We have not been able to still get home testing kits approved. You know, the entire rollout of these vaccines has been screwed up by these agencies and by, you know, the, the healthcare bureaucracies. And, you know, people like Anthony Fauci, yeah, I get it. He's a doctor. He's also been a government bureaucrat for like 40 years, okay, and still doesn't know how to communicate basic things to the American people without doing really stupid things like lying about masks. And then after you get caught doing that, by the way, don't like go back and lie again. So it's, it's about time that we reined in executive agencies. It's about time that Congress took back its role as the first branch among equals. And it's way past time, in fact. Because, yes, I get it. It's very tempting if you're Congress to, to you know, pass things over to a regulatory agency so that if people yell at you, you can throw up your hands and say, well, I can't do anything about it. That's this agency over here, right? But actually, you can do something about it. And your job is to make the hard decisions and then let the people yell at you and then let them fire you if they don't like the decisions that you made, right? You signed up to be in Congress. It's not just a popularity contest and it's not meant to be an easy job. And if you don't like it, maybe you should go do something else, right? But do your jobs, okay? So that being said, this is not the case where that's going to happen. Just realistically speaking, I think Roberts and Kavanaugh are the deciding votes on whether delegation gets clipped. And I think it's probably Kavanaugh. I, I suspect Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas are all sympathetic to the idea that the administrative state you know, an excessive delegation needs to be trimmed back. Barrett, it's hard to say, but I think that she would line up with those guys. And Kavanaugh has shown an interest in doing that, but he's also close with Roberts. And he's not going to want to do it on a case where you're talking about a vaccine mandate in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, that is not a, a circumstance where you're going to be able to bring Roberts on board and get a 6-3 to limit the power of the, of the administrative state, which is what I think they want to do. Okay, so this is not like an ideal case for that. And I don't think they will do it in, the, in this case, particularly because I don't think they're going to have to. Okay, so you have this, this delegation under OSHA. that OSHA has this broad authority. But does it have the authority to do what Biden is having it do? Okay, now you start to get into the enabling statute here for emergency standards. First of all, you have to have something that's declared an emergency. Second of all, the, the standards have to pertain to, you know, dangerous substances specifically. And so, you know, like, for example, the most recent one was back in 1983, which is another thing. And that was involving the regulation of, of asbestos, right? So keep in mind, we have an originalist majority. And we have, in particular, a lot of justices look at the original public meaning of a statute. So they're going to look at the statute, the OSHA statute here, that, that gives OSHA this emergency authority and say it's to regulate substances and to regulate the workplace, okay? So what's the substance, the dangerous substance that's being regulated that's that's in the environment, that's the workplace? Is coronavirus the substance? Well, then you have a situation where vaccine mandates don't prevent breakthrough cases because we know that there's some, not a lot, but some breakthrough cases are happening mild with, with vaccines, which, meaning that, which means that a person who is vaccinated can still be bringing that dangerous substance in. And so an originalist might look at that and say, okay, um, are you actually preventing the dangerous substance from being present in the workplace? Because you need to regulate the substance. You need to regulate the virus, in other words. 
So, you know, the equivalent would be, we're not going to eliminate asbestos, but we're going to make everybody wear, you know, lead-lined suits so they don't get asbestos poisoning. Yeah, the court might say, no, that's not necessarily something you can do. Then there's the emergency fact of this. The fact that Delta variant has been, you know, surging since June, late June, early July, and we're just now getting this mandate in September. Okay, so what the emergency statute does is it, it short circuits the regulatory process. Regulatory process is you have to give notice about a regulation and give people the opportunity to comment on it. So the emergency thing prevents the notice and comment aspect. Yeah, is that justified? Is that justified given the government's own conduct? And then you also have the fact that in the past, Biden has said, and Pelosi has said, and a lot of people have said, that the federal government doesn't have the authority to impose a vaccine mandate. Okay, because, why? Public health authority has generally been linked with the police power in pandemics, and the police power is generally exercised by state and local governments, not the feds. Okay, so there's a couple of complicated ways in which, yes, there's a lot of this stuff that's delegated, yes, there's the interstate commerce, but depending on how this rule is written, and we don't actually have the text of the rule yet, there could be a number of ways in which it could be challenged. Number one, so like, is it only applying to people who have over 100 employees where they're working in offices? Because if you're, you know, 100 employees working in sort of a construction company or something like that, there's really not a lot of evidence of outdoor transmission. And so should those people be regulated? Because, because the purpose of OSHA regulation is there is a clear and present danger because of the workplace. Right? So you have to demonstrate that, that in the workplace, without this mandate, people are going to get COVID and get severely sick from it. So if you've got companies that are working, you have over 100 employees, but mostly they work outside, then, and there's very little evidence of outdoor transmission, that's, a huge, that's, that's potentially a problem. Okay, So that limits the scope. Then there's the question of interstate commerce. Okay, So what if you've got a local restaurant chain that has, you know, Let's just say for the sake of Virginia, I don't know, three restaurants in Virginia, Beach, one in Norfolk, one in Richmond. They clearly have over 100 employees. To what extent are they engaged in interstate commerce? Well, they might be if they're buying stuff or selling stuff across the lines, but then the original public meaning is, okay, but does that interstate commerce, you know, how, how does that apply, right? So there are a number of, of things that might come into play there. Why is the cutoff 100 and not 50? Or why is the cutoff 100 and not 250? Okay, so there's all these types of things that are going to have to be justified. And it's, a, it's going to end up being a very complicated legal argument. I think that this probably does not hold up because there are so many different angles on which it can fail. Okay, so when you're looking at like constitutionally, is, is this going to hold up? Is this not going to hold up? You want to look at how many points of failure are there. And the more you know, things that, that are, are making justices think maybe this isn't constitutional, the more likely you are to get some sort of messy five to four or six to three, striking it down with people concurring in part and dissenting in part and all these different things because different people have different objections. So I think probably the corporate part of this does not hold up. Now, if it does, but, but I, I would say it's not a slam dunk. Okay. I'm saying, I think not, this is definitely going to be struck down. Because if they're very, very careful and strategic in the way that this is done, if the people writing the rule anticipate all of these problems and tailor it to a certain extent more than the executive order that was described, they could probably write a rule that would pass most of the scrutiny 
The one that they can't is the, can you justify that this is an emergency and you should suspend regular notice and comment rules when you didn't do it two months ago? And one easy way that they could do that is to get the notice and comment process up and running, like, immediately. And that's something the advisory opinions folks suggested, such that by the time it gets to SCOTUS, notice and comment has been opened and they've been revising it based on the comments that are made. And then, you know, like the eviction moratorium decision that was that came down 5-4, where, where Kavanaugh said, yeah, this was bad, but it's about to expire. So we'll let you just kind of let it ride. LOL, that didn't work. But anyway, but like that, they might say, look, this was not done in a way that was proper statutorily speaking, but now, you know, it has been done, you know, properly through, through channels. So slap on the wrist, don't do it again. So there are ways in which it could stand up. However, I'm not necessarily thinking that it will because a mandate that is that specifically tailored and has that many, you know, quibbles and caveats and things like that in it is probably not going to affect as many people as they want it to affect. Okay. So now we come back to the, will this work? Okay. Because the, the question of can you do it constitutional is first, right? That <laughs> We have to address that question before we address the question of is it a good idea, right? Lots of people forget about this. They get to this is a good idea, ooh, shiny, and they don't do the can we constitutionally do this question first. That has to come first. That's the way our system is designed to work because something might be a good idea, ooh, shiny, that would have lots of, ni lots, of, lots of nice benefits. But if it's unconstitutional, you're still not allowed to do it. Okay, now, so we've addressed the constitutionality. Would this work if it were constitutional? Okay, the policy goal here is to increase levels of vaccination. That's a good goal, okay? Uh, you know, some people are going to disagree with that because they have bought into conspiracy theories about the vaccine. Increasing the level of vaccination in the United States on the whole, on balance, is a good goal. It seems like the vaccines have little to no negative side effects. There were some, but they're very rare in isolated cases. And increasing vaccination levels would be good. Now, our vaccination levels aren't that bad. We're, we're going to be north of 70% full vaccinations here, I would say, by the end of September, beginning of October, for those who are eligible. Kids are not eligible, but kids are still a, a group that's lagging in terms of serious COVID. You know, the case numbers are a bit up as, as more adults get vaccinated, more kids are getting it because, you know, as a statistical percentage of, of, of cases... And so, you know, the, the rate of hospitalization is increasing slightly. Again, that's a per capita thing because more adults are vaccinated. But, you know, the, the whole idea about like it's a surge and, and it's destroying the healthcare system for kids doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, now let's start getting into some COVID policy stuff that's absolutely driving me bananas. Okay, increasing vaccination rates. Good goal. It's a good thing to do. It's not going to solve this problem. Okay, it's not. First of all, getting 100% of eligible adults vaccinated in the United States is impossible. Why? Because getting 100% of eligible adult Americans in the United States to do anything is impossible. Okay, <laughs> you, you can't get 100% of, of people who are supposed to pay their taxes to pay their taxes. Speed limits don't actually prevent people from speeding. The ability to enforce the law is always much more limited than the scope of enforcement that the law claims. So even if you mandate it, you're not going to get 100% vaccination rates, okay? You can increase them. How substantially can you increase them? It's hard to say. My suspicion is that we could probably get things from 70% to 
but you're never going to get north of 80% because there's just, you know, somewhere in that 20 to 25% of the population that just will not do something, whatever thing X is like, they're just not going to do it. Okay. So somewhere at 75 to 80% is probably what we're going to get. And, you know, what would change somebody, somebody's mind to be persuaded at this late stage to get vaccinated? Honestly, you never know. It could be anything from a friend of theirs got COVID. It could be, you know, the, the, the possibility of a mandate and I don't want to lose my job. That will be for some. So, so raising the cost of not getting vaccinated does have a deterrent effect. In other words, some people will get vaccinated because of this. Some other people, some other percentage of the population will actually become less likely to get vaccinated because they are now required to do so. So their position will harden against it. We don't really know what percentage of the unvaccinated fall into column A and what percentage of the unvaccinated fall into column B. Okay, we just don't know that where it come, when it comes to the COVID vaccines. Different circumstances are going to change that. So it's, it's, it's you know, the unvaccinated population is not a monolith. It's going to depend on what are the case numbers like in their area? What are they hearing from their friends? How strongly did they hold the position? Vice, I just didn't get vaccinated because I felt like I didn't need to. You know, never underestimate the fact that some people are just not paying attention to this and haven't like made it a priority. Okay, that's that's a thing. That's almost certainly a thing. We don't know how big of a thing it is, but it's it's a percentage that's going to be out there. Okay, so we don't know how big column A, column B is, but my suspicion is there's about 20% of the population that you're just never going to convince to be vaccinated. Okay. We know that anti-vax sentiment is a very real thing. Ironically, it's very concentrated for the most part in elite left-wing circles on the coasts with some dovetails, like weird dovetails in more religious and conservative circles as well. But like the most intense pockets of anti-vax on non-COVID issues are in Washington and Oregon. Okay. So this is not a Trump versus Biden thing. This is not a Republican versus Democrat thing. And there's a lot of different reasons for anti-vax skepticism. It's a complicated phenomenon. And so, you know, people who are against the measles vaccine are probably not going to get the COVID vaccine, right? So you're, you're going to have that percentage plus some, because this is a new vaccine, it operates. And so people that are generally more tolerant of getting vaccinated will say, ah, oh, this one's a little bit weird. It was done faster, you know, all those different things. Now, I recommend that those people listen to the two recent podcasts we do with Mary Sarabroff, because I think it answers a lot of the questions. And a lot of that, that skepticism, while understandable, is not actually borne out by the science. It's not actually borne out by the facts. And like, I get that. It makes a certain common sense. But in this particular case, it's, it's actually not borne out by the facts. Now, what you basically will have done at that point is you will have probably accelerated the degree to which we will hit that floor. However, the government's usually a lagging indicator. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the government usually in, in COVID, throughout COVID, has been sort of three weeks to a month behind, to, or maybe two weeks to a month behind, things that people are already doing. Okay, so like as you look at the Delta, the spike of Delta, vaccination rates actually increase. Right. So we were falling, you know, to, to very low numbers and then they kind of ticked back up during the Delta variant. OK, so people are already looking at Delta thinking, yeah, OK, I hadn't gotten vaccinated yet. Seemed like things were sort of cooling off. Yeah, now they're picking up again. Maybe I need to get vaccinated. OK, so some of that's already happening. And so it's not clear to me to what extent the trends that we will see and that we have seen have been a result of government action 
or whether government action is, as it so often is uh, on these policy issues, more of a lagging indicator, uh, an indicator of changes that have already sort of started to percolate through the population. Getting to 80% is great. It's not going to fix the problem. You can still have emergency rooms that are swamped. You can still have hospital systems that are swamped with a 20% unvaccinated rate. It's not going to be as bad. But look, here's the other thing about COVID. COVID doesn't seem to care about your policies. Okay? Like, it doesn't matter whether you're a red state or a blue state. It doesn't matter whether you lock down or you don't lock down. It doesn't matter whether you have mask mandates or vaccine mandates. COVID comes seasonally in certain areas. The one thing that seems to matter is, is the population staying outside or are they more inside? Okay? In the summer, it hits the south. Why? Because everybody's in the AC and they're staying inside. And in the fall and the winter, it hits the north. Why? Because it's cold and everybody's got the heat on and they're staying inside. Right? So if you don't want to go, if you don't want to get COVID, go outside. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. It seems to be the one choice that you can make that has the most impact. I mean, you should get vaccinated too. But like, even vaccinations, there's some breakthrough cases. Like, the best thing that you can do is spend lots of time outside. Because it really, honestly, the in terms of like where the surges happen, it's weather dependent. It's not dependent on your vaccine rates. Vermont has seen, you know, some some pretty bad surges in certain places. And they've got the highest vaccination rates in the country. So everybody's like, oh, well, the South got it, but then the North's not going to get it in the fall. No, they will. They will. They totally will. Some of them, some of those areas won't be as overwhelmed. But like I said, you've got 15, 20% of the population unvaccinated in some of these areas. That's going to be enough to screw up your healthcare, health system if there's a giant surge. Okay. So it's going to hit the Northern States. It's, it doesn't matter. Like you're never going to be able to get everybody vaccinated because people just don't do that. And there's going to be a surge that's going to hit colder states once the weather shifts. Okay? Like, that's just, it's what COVID has done since it started. And it's going to continue to do it until it becomes endemic. Okay? 100% vaccination among the eligible is impossible. COVID doesn't care. COVID doesn't care about your red state, blue state. COVID doesn't care about your fancy book deals. COVID doesn't care about, you know, your policy wishing COVID into non-existence by if we could just create the perfect policy framework and get everyone to do everything that we said that they, and the COVID would go, no, it won't, it won't, it won't work. People don't do that and, and the disease doesn't care about your feelings, okay? So we need to do vaccination plus. I do not understand people crapping on the therapeutics. The, the, it's really cute, the whole thing about how all the rednecks in the red states are taking horse dewormer, but ivermectin seems to have some efficacy. The human version of ivermectin, which is what people are taking, seems to have some efficacy against COVID. We know Regeneron has some efficacy against COVID. The Biden administration is even like offering governors supplies of Regeneron, right? Therapeutics are good because they, for the unvaccinated, will decrease the likelihood that they go to the hospital. Okay, so everybody needs to stop crapping on the therapeutics because you're never going to get 100% of people to be vaccinated. And so for those idiots that won't make the right choice, you still have to have treatment options, right? Even if you think it's a, if it's a dumb thing to, be, to not get vaccinated, you think that, you think that everybody should do it. And, you know, it's all these people that I don't like. Well, okay, at some point, though, you have to face the reality that people aren't going to do what you want. And so you have to fix the problem anyway, right? And that's, and by the way, a lot of those quote unquote idiots are voting for the people that you vote for. And that's true whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, okay? High unvaccinated rates among African-Americans, high unvaccinated rates among more rural whites who tend to be more Republican. Statistically, if you break down the unvaccinated population, PhDs are overrepresented, okay? So it's, it's yes, a lot of people who are uneducated. And then there's like 
people with a college degree and master's degree who are getting vaccinated. And then there's a weird surge of PhDs who don't want to get vaccinated. So like it's, it's everywhere. It's in a lot of different areas. Again, this is not a monolithic or monocausal phenomenon, which means that you're not going to be able to just solve it with a hammer, with a policy hammer. It's not how it works. Okay. So therapeutics seem like they are having increasing efficacy. Okay. We need to have them readily available such that if people are starting to get COVID and they get positive tests for COVID, by the way, we need universally available home test kits. So if you get a home home test kit, you can go to your doctor and be like, doctor, I just pop tested positive for COVID. Do you have comorbidities? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. Here's some therapeutics so that you don't go to the hospital. That's another way of potentially preventing a surge that screws up our healthcare system. So yes, ideally they would get vaccinated, but if we lived in an ideal world, to quote the great sage James Madison, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Okay, so you're you're not really going to get full compliance, even if you had a mandate. Okay, here's the other reason that vaccinating the U.S. won't fix the problem. As we discussed in the recent podcast, you could vaccinate the United States, but that's not where the variants are coming from. Delta came from India. Mu came from Colombia. Okay, the variants, the things that everybody's worrying about, are coming from other parts of the world. So even if we get 100% of the population eligible, you've still got a giant petri dish around the world in which this is still burning through populations, creating new variants. And if you're worried about that super variant that'll be super resistant to the vaccine, like that's not going to come from here. That's going to probably come from somewhere else around the world. So it's great to say we're going to triple vaccinate everybody in the United States, but actually what we probably need to do is start figuring out how do we find out where the hot zones are for COVID and get vaccines into those areas around the world. So it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. Even if you could get everybody vaccinated in the United States, who's eligible, it wouldn't solve the problem. I think we need all of the above strategy when it comes to combating COVID. We need to encourage people to continue to encourage people to get vaccinated. You know, one thing that would be helpful that the government could do would actually be to figure out what populations are resistant to vaccines and then maybe try some public diplomacy. This is something, it's a fancy word. It used to be called persuasion. Like actually figure out who the unvaccinated are and what arguments would persuade them and what surrogates would persuade them. And then like try to persuade them because that's a lot cheaper and, and probably going to be more effective, even at this point, than what you're doing right now. Or at a minimum, right, you, you mandate what you can, because Biden is limited in what he can mandate. He really is. And then you try persuading. The other thing is you can incentivize, I would say, rather than a mandate. There's a lot of things that you can do through the power to tax, but that would require Congress. Right? So you could provide tax incentives for companies that meet certain criteria that have vaccine mandates. You could, you could provide tax penalties for companies that don't. As we know from the Obamacare ruling, that's totally legitimate. That's something that the court has defended. Fairly recent precedent. Congress could do it. And because it's a tax thing, you could do it in the reconciliation package. I mean, they'd rather spend $3 trillion on stupid stuff. But if you're going to do a reconciliation, there are ways that you could try to incentivize corporations to get their employees vaccinated using that process and using the tax code. But, you know, I think presidents just like executive orders. It's addicting to think that you can like, you know, by the stroke of a pen, I have, you know, decreed it to be thus. And, and so it is, but it's like not actually as effective as, as some of the other policies that you could pursue. Right. By the way, do businesses have the right to mandate that their employees get vaccinated? Yeah, probably they do. 
leaving aside the, the, the mandate issue, you know, there might be some contractual issues depending on certain types of unions, maybe, but aside from those contractual agreements, yeah, you work for them. They can tell you what to do, generally speaking. So masking briefly on, on the, on the masking point, businesses can, yes. States probably can if they want to. Should they? Mm, I'm not necessarily a big fan of a lot of the policies that states have been doing in terms of, of uh, mask mandates, particularly in schools. And I would say that's true both of Virginia, which mandated masks in all schools, and Florida, which said that, that school and Texas, which said school districts can't. I think the reason that you have local school boards and school districts is so that they can assess what the COVID conditions are in their local area, and they can make that decision. And if you don't like the decision that they make, they're a school board. You can go yell at them. But I, I generally think allowing local governments to make their own decisions has generally had the best returns in terms of, of, of COVID policy. More ham-handed strategies from higher up the food chain, not as much. So, you know, and states have generally done a better job than the feds, but locals, I would say, also tend to do a better job than states. And if the local government's absolutely screwing up, like New York did under de Blasio, the state can't always come in. But the state, you know, it's harder for the state to then back off and hand things back off to the locality if they've been if they've been more aggressive than it is to let the locals, you know, try to figure it out based on case numbers and, and what they're seeing. And then if things start to get out of hand, the state can always step in later, right? So, yeah, I, I think I think that's probably the best way of handling it. As far as businesses and things like that go with with masks, you know, businesses can't require you to get vaccinated probably to come and, and do business. Is how they check that anyway. If they want to require masking, again, it's it's their business. They have the right to tell you that you need to wear a mask and you have the right to tell them that you're going to shop somewhere else if you don't like it. That's, you know, again, the basic contractual relationship of the sale. So a lot of this could be solved if people would stop trying to just be dumb and, you know, let let people make decisions for the areas where they actually have authority to make decisions. Look, here's the bottom line. I think politically, now we get to the last aspect of this. Biden has done two things. One, he has probably shored up his support among his base, which is leaning hard into the COVID restrictions are necessary because if we don't have them, we're all going to die, end of the spectrum, but has also hardened opposition from those who don't want to get vaccinated. And I think the danger for Biden here is twofold. One, I think generally speaking, most people who are vaccinated either don't care or, or probably think it's it's you know, somewhat fine. You know, there are going to be some very few people who are vaccinated that actually care about the constitutional issues and wonder if he has the constitutional authority to do that. I, I don't have a lot of faith that the vast majority does. But are they going to be strongly motivated by it? No, no, a certain percentage will, but probably not. So there's the question of support versus intensity. So I think support for this is probably going to be pretty broad. I think last polling I saw was like in the low 60s. And that sounds about right. And then there's another going to be another chunk that are just like, mm, yeah, I don't know. But opposition, while a smaller group is going to be more intense. And, key point, is not going to be concentrated among people who are already not going to vote for Biden or vote for Democrats. Okay? Like, has anybody actually looked at where African Americans are in terms of vaccines? Has anybody looked at where, you know, the, the left-wing anti-vaxxers in the Pacific Northwest are on this? Because those are people who, if they don't turn out for Democrats, that's going to have a political effect. Okay? 
whenever there's low minority turnout, you know, or, or you know, and I'm not saying that these people are going to necessarily go vote Republican. They just might not come out to vote for Democrats. And that'll kill them in the midterms. Absolutely kill Democrats in the midterms. I mean, it's already a tough environment for them. Now, you may be thinking if you're Biden, you know, you're going to take your lumps anyway. And at least this way, you've shored up broad support from your base. Yeah, you have. But you've also solidified distrust of that vaccinated population. And some of those folks are part of your coalition. In fact, some of those folks are critical part of the coalition that got you elected over other people in the primary. Okay, so like, here's the thing about Biden. He's playing to the left. And the problem with him playing to the left is that he wasn't elected by the left. He's never going to be able to satisfy the left because they wanted Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or somebody else anyway. Right. So he'll never go far enough to please the left. And he's irritating the people who did elect him. This isn't just about the vaccine mandate. This is just like Biden in general. Older voters, more moderate voters, African-Americans. I saw a fascinating poll recently. It was a poll of Democrats. Do you think the party should move more to the left, more to the center, or is it about right? White voters, the split was pretty close. It was like 33 or 34% said move to the left. And then, you know, three or four points higher than that said move to the center. African-Americans, it was 43% moved to the center, 20, like 22% move, move to the left. That's a huge gap. That's like a 20-point gap in favor of moderation among African-Americans. Okay, and if you look at the New York mayoral race, for example, where Eric Adams won by, by essentially running as a more moderate. If you look at the Ohio 11 special, which is in a black majority district, where Chantel Brown shockingly upset Nina Turner, who was one of you know Bernie Sanders' big, big backers in, in a, a very deep blue district, right? This is not just a polling preference. You, you could look at uh, Rochester, where Lovely Warren, who is a left-wing incumbent, was upset by a more moderate challenger, Malik Evans, uh, who was running as a sort of more mainstream, moderate type of Democrat. Okay, this is not just a revealed preference, but it's also a preference that has been borne out by actual electoral results. So it's not just a poll, but we've seen it play itself out in elections. And that means that the center of gravity is shifting. And Biden, who's usually been very good in his career, about pegging where the Democratic Party is, has lost it. He's lost his touch for where the party is because the party wants him to move in a more moderate direction. He's not doing it. So is this vaccine mandate going to you know, have a huge impact? No, probably not, to be honest with you. Republicans are already souring on Biden to the extent that they were not before. I mean, it's it's becoming more intense. You know, And, and non-Republican people who don't want to get vaccinated, Biden has, has been alienating chunks of them already because he has not done a good job of effectively appealing to minorities and, and giving them what they want. African-Americans, Hispanics, etc., are starting to, you know, that, that drift from 2020 where they're like, we're not so sure about this new direction of the Democratic Party. That doesn't seem to be going away. How sustainable it is and how dramatic it is is not clear yet. But it's happening. To some extent, it's happening. So, you know, that's, that's the politics. Here's the bottom line on all of this COVID stuff. I don't think zero COVID's ever gonna happen, okay? The fantasy that we can just completely eliminate COVID's probably not gonna happen. I think that we will get to the point where it's not pandemic, perhaps, but I, I don't see us getting to a point where there's ever, like COVID is just gone, at least not anytime soon. We might get to the point where it's the flu. <laughs> That's sustainable, okay? That's something that we can maintain. It's going to have, it's going to take 
a lot of work to get there. And it's going to have to be not just U.S. We have to look at the global picture. Because even if we got everything perfect in the United States, which is never going to happen because Americans just, not just Americans, you're never going to get 100% of anybody to do anything, okay? Except for sleep and eat and other bodily functions and death, right? <laughs> Aside from that, you're never going to get 100% of anybody to do anything, right? So if that's your strategy, you're, you've already failed. Come up with a better one, right? Come up with some other alternatives. And, you know, think, think more broadly about you know, pandemics don't care about borders. You know, I said earlier, the pandemic doesn't care about policy. COVID doesn't care about policy. It doesn't care about lines on a map either, right? So we're going to have to really figure this out and, and figure out more of a comprehensive global strategy for, at, at a minimum, getting the world beyond the pandemic stage. Because until we do, it's going to continue to be a policy challenge. We were past it. The U.S. was past COVID. We were emerging out the other side. And then a variant that came from somewhere else because somewhere else wasn't as far along smacked us. So we could get past Delta and then rinse and repeat if we don't really focus and, and figure this out. So that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on all the social media places mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Thinking we're going to go back to some more politically... Just, you know, just political stuff. And yeah, we're going to keep keep moving things forward. So hope you're enjoying the podcast. Have a great rest of your day. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.